You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 65. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. So, let's head over to the writing desk and see what I've got for you today. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 19 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, don't start listening here. You'll want to go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling has been trying to help some of her peers in the Metamore nobility to escape from a difficult situation. Lady Mysteria Halloway, Lady Julia Matthias, and Lady Sephira Hinlassos were all part of an illegal expedition to the Telvari Rift, a nexus of immense magical power. All three women were transformed by their exposure to the Rift's life-aspected mana, along with Julia's boyfriend, Lord Ezekiel Kapler. To make matters worse, the three women were all possessed by magical symbionts, intelligent creatures that fed on the life energy of the Rift. Now that they're trapped inside the women's bodies, those symbionts are feeding on their life force in order to survive. Unless they get back to the Rift soon, all three women will die. And since Zeke's father controls the Rift, and would likely try to use the symbiont's power for personal gain, they have to get back there without letting the Kaplers find out about it. Thanks to Catherine Catane, Metamore City police detective and Morgan's best friend, the problem of transportation has been dealt with. The Lothanasi Order has agreed to fly the women to the Rift and back in secret, on a transport that will be arriving in Metamore tomorrow night. Unfortunately, since the agreement was made, everything has gone to hell. Zeke found out about the meeting with the Lightbringers and decided to kidnap Julie, teleporting her back to his father's tower using his newly acquired psionic powers. Julie fell unconscious, overwhelmed by the symbiont's power drain. Baron Kapler had his doctors examine her in the clinical trials ward at Kapler Pharmaceutical, where they discovered the evidence that she was possessed by an alien entity. Morgan and Misty arrived, and after some tense negotiations, they convinced Baron Kapler to let them take Julia to the Lightbringers for help. But once the Baron was gone, Zeke showed up, prepared to fight Morgan and Misty to keep them from taking his girl away from him. He teleported a pair of machine pistols to himself in order to threaten the two women. Misty then revealed the secret power the Rift had given her, a shockingly strong talent for telekinesis. She broke both of Zeke's arms, took the guns away from him, and threw him more than a hundred meters across the lab. But Zeke's transformation apparently came with the power of self-healing, because a few minutes later he reappeared, his arms already mending. He teleported Morgan to the top of Kapler Tower, more than a thousand meters above the ground, then poured it away, leaving her hanging in empty air. Morgan fell, down, 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 into the darkness of the city.
Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 19 When Morgan Drowling died, it opened up all sorts of new possibilities for her. Well, to be fair, vampirism wasn't exactly like being dead. In many ways, it was entirely unlike being dead. Vampires were called the undead for a reason, after all. But her post-metabolic existence had brought with it certain potentials she had never possessed in life. One of those potentials was the use of magic. Every vampire had the knack for it, whether they'd been a mage before or not. It was the sort of thing that resulted from having a tiny nexus of necromantic energy embedded in the place where your heart used to be. The talent for channeling and shaping arcane forces was now, quite literally, in her blood. Not that she'd had much time to develop the talent. It took ten or fifteen years of continual study for a mage to reach the rank of Adeptus Exemptus, the minimum level of proficiency to legally practice magic without the supervision of a master. Morgan hadn't been a vampire for nearly that long, and studying the arcane arts had not been at the top of her priority list. Still, a vampire's magic could express itself in other ways, beyond the rigid disciplines of wizardry. One area of particular interest to Morgan was transformation, and it was here that she'd focused her early efforts at controlling her supernatural talents. Morgan didn't yet have the skill to turn herself into a bat, as she knew Fisher could, nor could she become a rat, a wolf, or any of the other creatures of the night with whom her kind shared a sense of kinship. She could, however, change into mist form at will. The mist form was an instinctive escape tactic for vampires, bred into them by Mother Lilith in prehistoric times. A vampire in mist form was vulnerable to sunlight, but little else— It could fly, if only slowly, and move through even the smallest opening with ease. A vampire whose physical body had received serious damage, but had not suffered a lethal decapitation or a paralyzing blow to the heart, would instinctively change into mist form and return home to its resting place, where it could regenerate in safety, assuming that no prospective vampire slayers had found its hidden sanctum. Morgan had known from the moment the Lightbringers killed her sire that she would be a target. The Vampire Queen explicitly forbade vampires from killing other vampires without her direct command, but there were many other things that Malcolm's people could do to Morgan if they decided to remove her. And that wasn't even considering the disgruntled cops from other precincts, who might decide that a vampire working on the Force represented too great a risk. Morgan was keenly aware of the truth behind her sire's accidental destruction while resisting arrest, and she had no interest in letting such an accident happen to her. So she had practiced her mist form a lot. Every day, for at least an hour a day, she drilled herself on the process of discorporating, moving around in mist form, and then reconstituting herself somewhere else. Above all, she wanted to be sure that she never gave her enemies a chance to corner her. Or, more relevant to the current situation, to smash her into jelly on the pavement. 
As soon as she realized she was falling, Morgan spread out her arms and legs, creating maximum air resistance. The force of the rushing air was intense, but she straightened herself out and got her mid-air tumble under control. Once she was falling in a neat and drag-intensive X position, she turned her focus inward and began willing herself to change. The practice paid off. A fledgling vampire, trying to fog out for the first time, might be able to accomplish it in as little as five minutes. A more typical vamp of Morgan's age might do it in 60 or 70 seconds. But in that much time, at terminal velocity, a vampire would fall more than three kilometers, more than the height of even Kaya's citadel. Starting from a speed of zero, at the top of Kapler Tower, Morgan had 23 seconds to shift before hitting ground. She managed it in 21. The cloud of pale fog that was Morgan Drowling smacked into the ground at something approaching 200 kilometers per hour. She felt herself roiling and rippling as her component molecules spread themselves out across the pavement, harmlessly bouncing off the concrete, where her all-important heart and brain would have been crushed into pulp by the impact. It was the sort of damage she probably could have regenerated from, given time, but she had no interest in that sort of radical self-experimentation. Scientific curiosity had its limits, after all. Once the momentum of impact had been spent, Morgan began willing herself back together. Not into her human body, but a more compact version of her mist form, perhaps three meters long and half as wide. She could sense her surroundings, in a way, the gentle brush of light against her component molecules, the soft tug of air currents, the vibrations of sound waves as they propagated through her. And she could sense magic, the currents of raw mana running through the city, and the weaker but far more intricate patterns of mortal spells and enchantments. They were not the superhuman senses of her vampire body, but they guided her well enough. She began feeling her way along the walls of the tower, looking for a way inside. She found it in a ventilation shaft 50 meters up the side of the building. It was far too small for a human body, and covered with a heavy iron grating. Morgan's vaporous form slid through it with ease. From there, she willed herself to move against the flow of the ventilation system. Slow going, but there was no help for it until she reached a junction and found the heating ducts that fed to the upper levels. Here she let the current take her, rocketing upward faster than an express lift. Every few levels she encountered another fan adding impetus to the airflow, and she swirled dizzily as the steel blades spun through her and propelled her further upwards. She held herself together and continued on. The ducts continued to branch off at regular intervals, like bronchioles in a titanic set of lungs. Morgan kept herself to the middle of the airstream until she picked up a sound, the distinctive hum of the climate control systems around the observation rooms. She nudged herself against the air around her, pushing herself off to the side that she thought would lead to the building's interior. The next junction came up extremely fast, sucking her into the side channel faster than a turn on a roller coaster. She spun through another fan, felt a negative pressure dragging her forward and down, and then spilled out of the ceiling and into the therapeutic trials lab, only a stone's throw from where her journey had started. She reincorporated herself, 
pulling her component molecules back into a body of flesh and bone. And when her eyes returned, it was clear that someone had been throwing a lot more than stones. Morgan had seen less wreckage after some tornadoes. The beautiful, perfect, spotless lab that she had lusted over was now a nightmare of smoking machinery, broken glass, and twisted wreckage. It looked like a few dozen major Daedra had used the place as a daycare center for their offspring, for a year, and then a troop of Davas had shown up and used it for combat practice. Morgan couldn't help herself. She screamed in horror. A burst of sparks came from down the hallway, and a rack of computer equipment two meters tall came flying out into the corridor. It struck the nearest lab bench sideways, with minimal loss of altitude, and the top half of the rack sheared off from the force of the impact. Servers, hard drives, and router boxes flew and skittered across the room, striking walls and support columns, and smashing into shards of plastic and silicon. The monstrous form of Misty Halloway came into view a moment later, following the path of the equipment rack. She dragged half a dozen fraying cables in one fist, a couple of which were still sparking. Her other hand was wrapped around the throat of a very limp Ezekiel Kapler. Misty paused, the nostrils flaring on her inhuman muzzle. She turned and looked down the hall toward Morgan, and her amber, goat-slitted eyes widened. "'Morgan! Gods, are you all right? I saw you fall past the window!' This, Morgan waved a hand vaguely at the havoc around them. You did this? Misty looked around with a faint air of pride. Yeah, pretty much. Well, Zeke helped a little. Morgan dropped her hand. It's true. You are a monster. The she-demon snorted. Oh, come on. The Baron's got people to clean this up and if he doesn't like it, he should blame Zeke here for picking a fight with me. She shook the ragdoll body of Ezekiel for emphasis. Arms, legs, and tentacles flopped back and forth disconcertingly. Morgan grimaced. Is he... dead? No, Misty said. She held him up before her, regarding his inhuman face with something like pity. He's done some fucked up shit, but I couldn't do that to him. He's not evil, he's just... sick. Morgan put her hands on her hips. The anger surged up out of nowhere, spilled out of her before she could stop it. He tried to blow up my friends, Misty. Not to mention getting Hal and Travers killed, and treating Julia like a damned trophy. From where I'm standing, the distinction between sickness and evil is rather academic. Now you sound like our fathers, Misty said scathingly. Who cares why he did it? Who cares what arcane powers might have fucked with his mind? Let's just call him evil so we can kill him and be done with it. And you're making excuses for him because he's a noble, giving him extra consideration, extra chances that the common folk would never get. This is exactly what's wrong with the Empire, Misty. A taut, brittle silence hung in the air between them. No, Morgan, Misty said quietly. What's wrong with the Empire is that everybody doesn't get extra chances. She gestured down at Zeke with her free hand. 
You've been out of the game a long time, Morgan. You don't know Zeke like I do. He can be generous, and funny, and loving, and even kind. Yes, he's got issues, but if he were a complete asshole, I wouldn't be his friend, no matter how politically useful he is. You've got to believe me. The Zeke we saw here tonight? Not the real Zeke. Or not all of him, anyway. I'm not giving up on him. Not while there's a chance for him to redeem himself. Morgan glanced down at Zeke, lying limply in Misty's grasp. She sighed. You may have a point, but I'm afraid it may already be too late. Real life doesn't work like the movies, Misty. Choking someone into unconsciousness can easily kill them. Misty gestured with the hand that was clamped around his throat. I didn't choke him. I can feel the blood moving inside him. I've been slowing down the flow to his brain, enough to keep him unconscious without killing him. Morgan stared. The level of psychic power and control that implied would have been terrifying in anyone, much less the anointed spokeswoman for the cult of a Daedra lord. She silently bumped Misty up three more notches in her threat assessment index. That's a very delicate balance, Misty, she said carefully. If you're even slightly off, you could cause permanent brain damage. I know, Misty said quietly. It's taking a lot of my attention. Morgan looked at the wreckage of the computer system. Yet apparently you have enough bandwidth to do some redecorating. Misty glowered. I had to kill their records. They were doing research on Julia. They knew about what happened out there. Possession. The word came out harder and flatter than Morgan had intended. Easy, Morgan. Easy, she told herself. She just wiped the floor with Ezekiel. One little vampire isn't going to give her any trouble. It isn't that simple, Misty said. Her voice had taken on an earnest, pleading tone. I don't have time to explain it right now. Julia's getting worse, and I don't know how to help her. Please. Morgan searched the other woman's eyes for a long moment. Her own eyes narrowed, and her words came out in the clipped, precise diction of her upper-class breathing. Fine. For now, I'll help, for Julia's sake. But later, you and I are going to have a long talk. A very direct and honest one. Misty winced a little. All right. What do we do? Follow me and do as I tell you. Morgan jabbed a finger at Ezekiel. And try not to kill the heir to House Kepler in the meantime. They went back to the observation room where Julia was being kept. The room and its control systems seemed to be the only things on that floor that neither Misty nor Zeke had considered expendable. Morgan passed through the airlock and immediately noticed the change in temperature. It had already risen at least ten degrees. The sedative mix had still been feeding into the IV when Zeke interrupted them. Now it was running low, and there was no time to go hunting for another bag and Morgan could see signs of the wasting in Julia's arms and legs, the same symptoms she'd seen in the body of Hal Raines. She's almost out of time, Morgan said quietly. Misty looked over her shoulder at Julia, her face stricken. What can we do? That depends. 
Morgan cast a sidelong look at the demoness. This thing inside her, it feeds on her life force, doesn't it? Misty's lips compressed in a hard line. You want her to live? Answer the question. Yes, Misty said, the word sounding like it had been forced out of her. And does it have to come from a person, or is any source of positive energy sufficient? Just positive energy, Misty said. Life aspect in mana. But there has to be a lot of it. Morgan nodded, her course of action decided. Right. Wrap her in that blanket and get her ready to go. She found gauze and medical tape in the supply cabinets, took out Julia's IV and bandaged the wound, being careful to avoid prolonged contact with the woman's skin. Simple heat wouldn't trigger her vampiric vulnerability to fire, but if she accidentally set her clothes alight, she could be in serious trouble. Misty tossed the blanket over Julia one-handed, then it wrapped itself around the woman in response to Misty's telekinesis. What about... She trailed off, then lifted Ezekiel wordlessly. Put him on the gunny. Morgan lifted Julia in the thermal blanket and set her gently on the floor, making room for Ezekiel. They strapped him down, and Morgan placed a new IV line in his arm, then fed in the same mixture of sedatives and anticonvulsants Dr. Ashland had been giving to Julia. Assuming you haven't turned him into a vegetable, he should wake up in an hour or so. Morgan said. She carefully picked up Julia again and steered her through the airlock, as Misty pushed the revolving door from behind her. If you have any way of reaching your friends, let them know we're heading for the Citadel. Misty froze for half a second, then stuttered back into motion again. Wait, the Citadel? We're supposed to head for Lightbringer headquarters. She won't make it that far, Morgan said, frankly. This thing inside her is going to kill her, unless we feed it something else. The Citadel is sitting on the biggest mana spring in a thousand kilometers. If we can reach it, it should keep her alive until the Lightbringers can make a pickup. For a long moment, the only sound was the two women's footsteps as they hurried back to the lift. Once inside, Misty spoke. It might work, she said. But Morgan, you're talking about Kaya's heart the nexus of her power. She hasn't let anyone near it for centuries. She'll make an exception for this, Morgan said confidently. Misty's hands clenched into fists. How can you know that? Why would she take the risk? Morgan closed her eyes for a long moment, then opened them again. Because thirteen centuries ago, a Matthias saved Kaya's life. The spirit of Metamor pays her debts. They rode the rest of the way in silence. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. How does Morgan plan to reach the Nexus? Will Majestrix Kaya go along with it? And what about Kate and David, who are about to be eaten by a nest of hunters? The action continues next week. It's been a busy week, so I don't have anything pithy to say here. So, here's your weekly writing report. 
I wrote 3,556 words this week over the course of 5.5 hours for an average writing speed of 647 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 67 days without breaking my chain. I didn't get as much writing done this week as I wanted to. I made a little bit of progress on my Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences story, which is now up to about 2,200 words. I also put out my State of the Podcast report for my Patreon patrons, which was almost 1,600 words. I had more to say than I was expecting. But this was Mel's last full week in town before she leaves for Burning Man, so I wanted to spend some more time with her. Next week, I should make more progress. Yesterday, I did another live author interview through Google Hangouts on Air. This time, I talked with KT Brisky about her new podcast. Six Stories Told at Night. This looks like a really cool project, and I had a great conversation with Katie about doing research as a writer. We got some good questions from the audience, too. You can watch the interview on my YouTube channel, and I'll be airing it here on the podcast in two weeks. For now, here's a promo. Once upon a time, there was a girl who lived in a little village far away. I've got this friend, Joelle, right? Sam, I know how to get there. It just takes the right story, that's all. Once upon a time, I'm looking for my friend. Getting to Elfland isn't the same as getting into Elfland. You must tell me a story. One which I have never heard before. Elfland. Fairy. Avalon. Tirnanog. When you read enough fairy tales... You learn how things work. When you are ready. Six stories told at night. Part audio drama, part storytelling, all Canadian fairy tales. Find out more at ktbrisky.com. That's ktbrysky.com. And now, the feedback. Chris, it's Sarah Tesserosa. I um, hope this finds you well. I realized I didn't comment on either of the last two episodes with Things Unseen, but I did really enjoy them. I was commenting mentally before calling about, like, why is everyone falling off of things? Except for the falling as much as being thrown. I just think it's kind of funny that mid- end of one chapter and then mid the next chapter, a.k.a. two episodes in a row, end with someone falling. Hi, Sarah. When I wrote the first draft of Things Unseen, the pieces weren't all in the same places that they are now. Sometimes I stayed with one viewpoint character for several chapters, while I followed their storyline into and out of the cliffhangers and predicaments I envisioned for them. Once I was done, though, I needed to do some rearranging. Partly, this was to make the chronology line up, so that I wasn't having to jump too far forward or backward in time when I moved between one plotline and the other. The other reason was to balance the chapters, so they would all be roughly the same length. As a result, Morgan and Misty's confrontation with Zeke, and Kate and David's journey through the Hunter's Nest, were both cut into pieces. One side effect of this rearranging was that two back-to-back segments ended with Kate and Morgan's respective falls. I remember noticing that when I laid out the chapters, and thinking to myself, Man, I really am a cliffhangering bastard. I'm glad you found it as amusing as I did. So the, um, what's his face? 
uh, Fisher, I had completely forgotten, like, who the bad guy was in Alive. I need to reread that. I, I bought that book from the girls at Balticon. I really liked that when I first listened to it, so I'm looking forward to rereading it. And I'm glad that you took Nobel's vision and took this character and, you know, grew him into something that's really seemingly a pretty interesting character, plus the one that, you know, Nobel's is like, this is better than my idea. So that makes me happy. Thanks. It makes me happy, too. One of my favorite things about writing in a setting like this is taking what other people have created and running with it. And when they like the direction I'm running in, that's even better. But, damn, chapters are full of frickin' douchey McDoucheers and gosh. Of course it makes sense, I mean, for the bad guys to be assholes. But Zeke's just, Zeke's specific brand of being in his own little world is just bad. It's sad for him, and it's scary for the people who are being affected by him. You're right. It is sad. It is also, unfortunately, not uncommon. People with access to wealth, power, and privilege can all too easily slide into their own little world, where the people around them are just prizes to be won, or toys to be played with. In the last few years, we've seen how much damage this can do in the real world, and that's just with mundane forms of power. For someone like Zeke, who thinks that he's ascended to become something better than human, that's a dangerous thing to happen to a man's psyche. Thanks for the call. Hey, Cliff. It is Novellus Reed calling in for feedback on the most recent episode of Raven and the Writing Desk. And I wanted to say bravo for setting yourself up with multiple cliffhangers hanging back and forth between each other. It's an old trick, but it's the reason that people use it is because it works so well and you're doing a great job with it. Uh, One thing I did have to say was that giving form to the hunters did kind of make them more understandable and less terrifying. It has solidified how much shit that our heroes are in, but at the same time, it's... I wonder if that... um, Well... I don't write horror. Hi, Nobilis. The issue you are dancing around here is a real one, and it's what our good friends at TV Tropes call monster delay. To quote, The larger and badder the monster, the longer it will take for them to become visible. Unquote. We saw this in Jaws, in many episodes of The X-Files, in Jurassic Park, and most recently in Stranger Things on Netflix. The better you can get a close look at the monster, the more knowable it is. And the unknown is almost always scarier than what the author can create, or the visual effects team can put on the screen. They actually use this deliberately on Stranger Things, because the degree to which you see the monster is directly proportional to how much power the heroes have to defeat it. The stronger and more capable they get, the less overwhelmed they are by their own fear, the more the camera lingers on the monster. Finally, we come to the moment of its final destruction, and the monster at last is fully, starkly illuminated, and not nearly so scary. So that's the way horror movies work. It's a storytelling device that was born of necessity. When your budget is small, you can't afford a lot of special effects, so you have to hide things in the dark, so they don't look as cheap and unscary as they actually are. And it works, because it plays on the human mind's natural tendency to fill in the gaps in the information it's receiving. 
Now, all of this was running through my mind as I was writing the scene in The Hunter's Nest. But in this case, the horror movie trope runs up against a setting with different rules. First of all, this scene is from Kate's point of view, and Kate is not a mundane bystander. She's a detective with an eidetic memory, and that means she's going to carefully observe details and remember them. The monster is veiled in shadow at first, but the closer it gets, the more she can see, and the more detail she's going to notice. I realized as I wrote the scene that there was no way I could be coy about the monster's description and still be true to the character. Lovecraft got around this by having his characters only remember fleeting impressions of the horror they had witnessed, or they say it was too horrible to be described or whatever. That's not going to fly with a character like Kate. So yes, I took a deliberate step away from cosmic horror by letting us see the hunter in its full alien glory. And yes, that makes it more knowable and less horrific. And you know what? I'm good with that. Metamore City may border on Lovecraft Country, but it doesn't live there. Our heroes are urban fantasy heroes. Gritty cops, clever criminals, and spooky superhumans. These aren't the hapless investigators of a Lovecraft story, doomed to go mad at their first sight of eldritch horrors from beyond the stars. In urban fantasy, the good guys never go down without a fight. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing here and want to help me keep doing it, leave a review on iTunes, or review my books on Amazon, or sign up to be a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.